God's great love story is found throughout all of Scripture. As we have been looking for the past four weeks to the month of February, we look through his love story as it was related to a Moabite woman named Ruth. And so we intersected with God's love story. And uh, we will spend the next several weeks leading up to Easter now as uh, we get ready to look throughout all of Scripture. We we could have spent 10 weeks in Ruth but uh, and, and see how wonderful that book is. But now we are tasked with looking at the Bible from Genesis all the way to the cross of Christ as we have seen God's love story unfold through the life of Ruth, through uh, the, the story of Ruth and Boaz and the love that they had for each other. But I, I submit to you that as we open up uh, the Bible, even from the book of Genesis on, we see uh, God's great love story being unfolded before our very eyes. He, he is telling us of a coming Savior as we will see even at the very beginning as sin occurring. He comes and he offers a message of hope. W.A. Criswell, the great pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, wrote a book and he entitled what we're talking about as the scarlet thread through the Bible. Have you ever heard it called that before? From Genesis all the way through to the New Testament, we see this scarlet thread that is woven throughout the stories of the Old Testament, pointing us to Jesus, pointing us to the Savior, pointing us to the hope that we can find in Christ and Christ alone. So it is, it is our responsibility for this month of March as we get ready to celebrate Easter Sunday to open up the Old Testament and look, we can't do it all. Uh, we cannot see all the stories, but only get a glimmer, a, 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 a sliver, if you will, a piece of the Old Testament and see how exciting it is because God is right here in the Old Testament screaming out of the coming Savior that is to come. We turn to Genesis chapter 3, and any love story has to have a beginning. And we see here in Genesis 3, the promise is given to us. Now, in order to understand the hope, in order to have good news, there must be bad news. And that's what we come to this morning. Genesis chapter 3, please stand in the honor of reading God's Word. Genesis chapter 3, I'll be reading from the ESV. That's the English Standard Version, but you follow along in your translation as I read from mine. Genesis chapter 3 and beginning in verse number 1. Now the serpent, of course that was Satan, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but... God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent, verse 4, said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman sat or saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, she had a desire to be made wise She took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Father, we thank you for this word. And Lord, we 
exclaim, holy, holy, holy is our God. We know that you are here. And Father, as we open your word, God, I ask that you will speak to us from it. Father, speak to our hearts this day. Father, allow your word to impact our heart, those of us who know you and have a relationship with you. And Father, those of us who are here today who do not have a relationship with you. Father, speak into all of our lives. We ask this in Christ's name and all of God's people said, please be seated. Let me give you the backstory of what we just read. God created everything in six literal days. Genesis chapter 1, God created everything in six literal days. On the final day of creation, he created uh, his most important creation. He created man. Later, after he created Adam, he he created Eve. God said in the middle of the Garden of Eden, he he gave Adam and Eve dominion over all of his creation. And and he told Adam, I want you to go and I want you to name all these living things. And so he, he begins to do this. And he sits in the middle of the Garden of Eden two trees, the tree of life and the tree of good and evil. He said, I want you to eat as often as you want to of the tree of life, but do not touch the tree of good and evil. Well, you know what happened? Satan tempted Eve. We just read in the story, she took of the forbidden fruit and so did Adam. Now, what we find here in our text, as we read, we, we see the, the, the promise being made, the promise that is given. Now, let's first of all see the result of their disobedience. Let us first see the results of sin. You see, sin has major results. There has has major consequences. And as we read through Genesis chapter 3, we see the results of sin. First of all, the first result of sin is shame. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7, we just read it. It says that their eyes were opened and they both looked down and they realized that they were naked. They were unclothed. You see, before this, they were never clothed. They were walking around. They they didn't have any clothes on before they sinned, but they were covered in the righteousness of God. But now their eyes are opened. Now they are naked. Now they're exposed. Now they're feeling shame and they're feeling guilt. It's this loss of innocence. It's something that we deal with every day with our children, isn't it, parents? I deeply regret the naivety and innocence among our little ones. Just watch TV or or movies or listen to music and hear what our children are being exposed to every single day. Things that we didn't learn about until later on in our high school years, they're having to teach to kindergartners in first grade because they're hearing about it at school. This loss of innocence, it produces shame. Sin brings shame. It brings guilt. It brings grief. Sin promises pleasure, but it produces pain. Sin promises life, but at the end, it always produces death. It's shame, sin and shame. Now, in one sense, we ought to thank God for our sense of shame. For you see, it's our guilt, it's our shame that produces a need for salvation. A Savior that is to be recognized, and a Savior that is needed. It's this shame and this guilt that we feel over our sin that that causes us hopefully to run to Him in prayer and repentance. Ezra 9.6 speaks of this. He says, and I say, oh my God, I, I am too ashamed. I'm too humiliated to lift up my face to you, oh my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. This is the spiritual condition of mankind. 
And our shame, our sin, our guilt will either drive you to Christ, it will drive you to God, or it will drive you away in shame and you will do what Adam and Eve tried to do and hide themselves. Adam and Eve tried to hide themselves in their shame. They covered their works with, with works of their own hands, with fig leaves. Simple fig leaves, they, they tried to cover up the, the massive destruction that just took place with them partaking of that fruit. It wasn't the eating of the fruit that was the sin, right? It was the disobedience to God. And when they disobeyed God and they said, we want to be like God, we want to be our own God, that's what the, the basic definition of sin is. When, when they said, that's what we want, that's when sin entered into the human equation. And listen to what they did. How foolish. They thought they could just sew together some leaves and make it all go away. They felt shame for the first time. You know, some people today feel no shame. Listen to Jeremiah, what he says in Jeremiah 6.15. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Absolutely not. He says they were not all at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and following, he said, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. And now watch this, whose glory is in their what? Shame. Whose glory is in their shame. They glory in their sin. They glory in their shame. People parading around. Paul is saying that there are coming days and we are living in them right now where people parade in their sin. They take their sin outside and they say, look at all of the sin I commit. They're proud of their sin. There's no shame in sin. So many are shameless concerning their sin today. As a result of this, it's a result of the fallen nature of humanity. We have people today parading around their sin. They're, they're proud of their sin. They're, they're shamelessly coming out of the closet regarding their sin and their perversion. The scripture says in the shamelessness, it, it, it's the life of the lowest existence. Paul said it in Philippians 3, these people are enemies of the cross. Their glory is in their shame. Adam and Eve knew guilt. And I don't know where you find yourself today. I don't know if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That means you're saved. Or maybe you find yourself here today and you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Whether you're lost or you're saved, I I don't know where you are today. But if you have guilt, you need to take it to God. You, You need to take that guilt to God. Don't try to cover it up. How ludicrous. How ridiculous. You think that you can cover up your own sin, your own shame. Don't try to live with it. But take your guilt to God and he will exchange your guilt with his grace. The first result of sin is shame. The second result of sin is separation. Look again at your Bible, verses 8 and 9 of Genesis 3. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Now the woman and the man, they were afraid. They were afraid of God. And you see, this is one of the biggest deceptions that Satan throws at us, is to fear God in the wrong sense. Now the Bible tells us that we are to fear God. 
There is a healthy fear of God. I believe a lot of Christians have lost the fear of God. They, they view God as a cosmic Santa Claus and they, or a, a bellhop and they just snap their fingers and tell God to do something at their own bidding. That, that, that's, that's lacking fear of God. There's a fear of God that is healthy, but right here, and we should have the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says. But Satan, you see, Satan wants you to have an unholy fear of God. He wants you to be terrified of him. He wants you to see God not as a father, but as an oppressor. He wants you to run away from God. When you sin and in your shame and, and, and in your separation, he, he wants you to separate. He doesn't want you to run to God. He wants you to run away from God. And we see this in our story with Adam and Eve. This is what they tried to do. They tried to hide from God. Now, we know that's impossible, right? It is impossible to hide from God. You can't run from God. But this is the delusion and the illusion of sin. It's so illogical. Sin is illogical. Sin is irrational. When Satan tempts us to sin, it begins with lust. Understand, the temptation is not the sin. When Satan tempts us, the temptation is not the sin. Jesus, remember, was tempted in all ways known to man, but yet he knew no sin. It's not sin to be tempted. So when Satan whispers in our ear and he says, hey, just take that money, it doesn't belong to you, but you deserve it. When the temptation comes, the temptation is not sin. But when it becomes sin is when that temptation, listen to me, when that temptation becomes, as James says, lust. When that lust then, when that lust begins to take over in our heart, that lust will lead to sin. That sin will lead to death. Listen, friend. If you flirt with sin, if you flirt with sin, you will fall into sin. When you begin to flirt with it, you'll fall into it. Stop and think about it. What good will come from committing that sin? What good is going to come from shacking up with your coworker? What good is going to come from cheating on that test? What good is it going to, what, what, what good is it to take that money that doesn't belong to you? What good is it to steal, whether it's, whether it's your time from your employer or, or, or money from your employer? What, what good is it? What, what good is it going to really do you? What's it, what good is it going to do you to lie to your parents? You say, well, I need to lie to my parents to get out of trouble. Well, why are you in trouble in the first place? Because you sinned. You see, you stop and think about it. Sin is so illogical, isn't it? Sin is so irrational, but yet it's so tempting. We fall into it. We, we always fall into it. The, the temptation comes, and, and the, the, when the temptation comes, it's not impossible to say no to sin. We, we see that in our Savior. The, the Savior responded with Scripture every time temptation came. He said, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. That's why, Christian, it's so important to hide God's Word in your heart. So when Satan comes a knocking, you can say, get behind me, Satan. When the temptation comes, you can say no to temptation. The lie from the devil is that you have to submit to his temptation every time. That when a pretty girl walks by, you have to, you have to begin to lust after her in your heart. That's a lie from Satan. You can turn your eyes. You don't have to look back up in the rearview mirror. You, you, you can keep on going. Listen. Listen. In all seriousness. When you begin to, sin is serious. You understand that, right? It's not just a double take in, in, in a rearview mirror. You understand that, right? 
Jesus said that if you lust after a woman in your own heart, you've already committed adultery. Adultery is a pretty serious sin, is it not, married men? Uh, Well, married ladies, is adultery a serious sin? Yes. And so Jesus said that when you lost after somebody, you've already committed adultery. So we, 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 we have in our mindset that there's these okay sins, but then there's these sins that we don't commit. Sin is sin in God's eyes. Sin is disobedience to God. It is taking upon myself and saying, I am going to be my own God. Reality is we all sin. Saved and lost. You may have a relationship with the Lord for for 50, 60 years. You're still going to fall into sin. None of us get away with it. Men and women, they they make themselves fools thinking they can hide their sin from Almighty God. Oftentimes as Christians, the more we we go to church and the more we we try to do the Christian thing, the the, 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 the more we just allow sin to take hold of our life and we just begin to make... uh, accommodations for it we begin to say oh it's it's not gossip we're we're just praying for the person psalm 139 verse 7 tells us clearly that god is everywhere you can't run away from sin you can't run away from god the writer of the psalm says where can i go from your spirit or where can i flee from your presence can I ascend to the heavens? Nope, you're there. Can I descend to Sheol? Nope, you're there. You see, you can't hide from God. Your sin, which might be done in secret here, is public news in heaven. Jesus said the things which are done in secret shall be shouted from the rooftops. Here is man separated from God, hiding from God, distance from God. That's what sin does. You want to know what sin does? Sin takes you away from God. It leads you outside the will of God. And when you continue to live in sin, it takes you further and further and further away from His will and His blessings for your life. We all know the experience of disobeying God. But some of us know it all too well today. We've disobeyed God, and right now perhaps you feel estranged from God. You don't feel that God is no longer near you. The the, the sense of his presence is no longer real in your life. One of the the biggest questions I get is, is preacher, why, why do I feel that God is, is nowhere close to me? That when I pray, my prayers don't get past the ceiling. I, I, I respond to that statement in two ways every single time. Number one, number one, I ask them, are you living in unconfessed sin? Because if you're living in unconfessed sin, God doesn't hear the prayers of those who are living in sin. Go back and read James. God, when, when there's sin in our life, God doesn't receive our prayer. So as a Christian, question number one, is there unconfessed sin in your life? Number two, how's your spiritual walk with him? How's your quiet time? Because you see, if you're growing with the Lord daily, if you're waking up with God daily and you're spending time with him in his word, you're on your knees and you're praying and your relationship with him is growing on a daily basis, then, then let me tell you something. God is not going to feel far away when calamities come. He's going to be right there. So you see, when we begin to feel that God is far away, listen, God has not moved. We are the ones that moved away from him. 
Listen to what your conscience is telling you. Listen to what, what the spirit inside of you is saying. When, when you begin to feel that God is far away, perhaps you need to do an examination of your own life and say, God, is there something in my life that is keeping me from coming into your throne room? Sin produces shame. Sin produces separation. Number three, sin produces sorrow. Verses 14 and 16. God begins to lay out the the sorrow, the, the, the results of sin. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and of all the beasts of the field on your belly. I, when I get to heaven, I want to ask God, why did you not just go ahead and take the snakes out right here? Nobody likes snakes. Why didn't you just say, no more snakes? He didn't do that, though. He said, on your belly you shall go. All the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Then he said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Jump down to verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. Childbearing, childbirth was not a result of the fall. It was God's will and God's design always to have uh, women produce children. It was always God's plan to, to be fruitful and multiply. That was always God's plan. But, but what sin has done, sin has brought the pain of childbirth. You see that? There's sorrow. All creation is cursed. Sin produces sorrow. Every night, I, my, my little girl, Abigail, she wants me to tell her a story. We, we've read through the Jesus Storybook Bible, which if you don't have that, you should get that for your child. If you have a child or a grandchild, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Wonderful book that leads you from creation all the way to the cross, and it sees this scarlet thread through the Bible in every story. But Abby's on this new kick where she's wanting me to tell her stories now from the Bible. And so we, we told the story of, of Queen Abigail, and she just lights up because she's picturing herself as Queen Abigail and, and how she met uh, King David. And, and, and so we've been telling all of these stories and all these stories and all these stories. And one night last week, she came to me. And she said, Daddy, I want you to tell me a story. Well, you know how sometimes you have those, those moments of lapsing of judgment as, as a dad? Well, I, I, for some reason, I could not think of a story, you know, David and Goliath, or you, you name your story, Jesus feeding the 5,000, any story, any story. But you know what I did? Cain and Abel. I thought that would be a great thing to teach my child before she goes to bed, Cain and Abel. So I get in the middle of this story. Talking about how Cain and Abel, they brought these, 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 these things of, of worship to God. And as I started going through the story, my mind started saying, Wesley, you idiot. And so then I started thinking, well, do I lie to my child? Do I say that Cain, after God rejected Cain's sacrifice, do I say that, that Cain just brought a whole bunch of butterflies to Abel and said, here, huh? Here, brother. What do I do? So I said, and she's laying in bed, telling the story of Cain and Abel. And, and I just stopped after I said that God received Abel's sacrifice. And she said, Daddy, what happens next? Well, honey, uh, Cain killed his brother. <laughs> Boom. Eyes got massive. Sarah, Sarah goes, Wes, what are you going to do next week? Tell her about Sodom and Gomorrah? You know, 
Imagine Adam and Eve, though. In all seriousness, imagine Adam and Eve. Guys, we're, let's go on to the next uh, point, sub-point C, the result of sin of, of sorrow. Think about the sorrow Adam and Eve must have, have felt when they found out that their son Cain killed his brother Abel. Imagine the sorrow they felt because what just transpired, that would never have happened if they did not fall. If Adam and Eve never sinned, then Cain would have never have killed Abel because there would not have been that, that hatred there. So feel the sorrow. Imagine the sorrow when Adam and Eve, the, 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 the first people upon this earth, imagine the sorrow that they felt because of their sin. And they begin to see their sin transplaced into their own children's lives. We see this in Genesis 3 unfolding. Sin requires payment. All sin must be accounted for. It must be reconciled. If, if you're a CPA or, or a number cruncher, you understand that, that everything must reconcile. There's punishment. There's penalty for sin. There must be payment for sin. I have a pastor friend who was sending inappropriate texts to a woman. He's no longer in ministry. All sin must be accounted for. I read a startling statistic just the other day that said that only 10% of the pastors who begin seminary, only 10% will retire from the ministry. That means 90% of the young men who go to seminary to be trained as pastors, 90% of them will fall, majority of them will fall morally because of sin, some sin, and 90% will not retire from the ministry. You say, well, I thought that all my sin was forgiven at the cross. It was. Every sin that you commit, have ever committed, ever are committing, or ever will commit, all of that sin was dealt with there on the cross, completely and totally forgiven. But as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, we are forgiven. We we also, though, experience the sorrow of sin. You experience the sorrow over your own sin. You experience the sorrow over your spouse's sin. When your spouse sins, you feel it. You experience your, your children's sin, you, the, the sorrow of your, your children's sin. Your sin has been paid for. Your sin has been atoned for. It's been redeemed, yes. But still understand, there are consequences to my actions and the actions of others. Adam and Eve were forgiven. Understand, a, 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 an animal must have died. The Bible says that, that God took those fig leaves off and he put the skins of an animal over them to cover their nakedness. Now, if you've never, you can't just go and buy a animal skin. They, you can't just make up an animal skin. In order to have an animal skin, there must be what? An animal in order to have an animal skin, the animal must have died. So the blood must have been shed in order for them to be covered. So you see, with Adam and Eve, blood, this is very important for this series. Blood is required. Blood is required to cover over sin. Blood is the payment. If you were to rack up, say, $250,000 in debt... Let's say you're sitting right here and you have $250,000 in debt. Can you go to the bank and just bat your eyes and, and, and get out of that debt? No. 
Can, can, you, can you take monopoly money and take monopoly money and pay that debt down? No. The only thing that they're going to receive for payment is money, cash. In the same way, we have racked up a sin debt. Every time we sin, it goes against our ledger. It goes against our account. And when we sin, it it, it makes a, a ledger before God, and we are held accountable to that sin. We have a debt. It's called a sin debt. And no amount of money, you can pull out your wallet, you can try to pay it down, you can try to be a good person, you, you can throw monopoly money at it, you can, you can do all of these things, but nothing like that will pay off the sin debt. The only thing, just as there is only thing to pay off your physical debt, there is only one thing that will pay off your spiritual debt. Spiritually, it requires blood. Spiritually, it requires a perfect sacrifice. And, of course, we see this in Jesus Christ. God covered these two. He forgave them. And still yet, though, they lived under the consequences. Let's move away from the results of sin, and now let's see the pursuit of God. The pursuit of God. Look again at Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 8. They were walking through the garden. They sinned. And the Bible says that God asks, he says, where are you? Now, understand this, that when, when God says this in verse 9, the Lord God called to man and said, where are you? God is not, God is not saying it like this. Where are you? <laughs> he wasn't searching for them as if God had lost them. God hadn't lost Adam and Eve. He knew right where they were. This was not a, a question of, of information where God was trying to gather information. This is a rhetorical question. It, it could have been asked and you would have heard it more like this. Adam, man, where are you? What are you doing? What have you done? What's in your head? What are you thinking? You see, God here is on mission. God is seeking Adam. You would have thought it would have been different, right? You would have thought that would have been reversed. You would have thought that Adam and Eve would have been seeking God. You would have thought that in their, their midst of shame and their sense of, 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 of sin and of guilt, that they would have run to Him. They would have cried out to God. Oh God, we've sinned against you. We've broken your commandment. But that's not what happened. And that's not happens when, that's, that's not what happens when we sin. When we sin, we run away from God. We try to hide ourselves from God. You see, the seeds of sin set in. Sin has made men distant from God. That's why the Scripture says in Romans 3.11, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Uh, there, there's none who seek after God. We don't seek God. The fact is, the Scripture says in 1 John 4.19, we love Him because He first, what? Loved us. There's a growing trend in churches today. They're trying to add a new category of people. They're trying to minister to this third category. They, they, they have the lost and the saved, but they have this other category they've, they've, they, they're calling the seekers. Well, that's entirely wrong. There's no such thing as a seeker. There's no such thing as a person who is lost who's seeking God. That doesn't happen. That's not possible. There's only two types of people, the lost and the saved. 
And in his love, he came on a quest. He came in the person of Jesus Christ and the promises given here and as fulfilled in Christ that the one who, who would ultimately, he was the one who ultimately would come and destroy the works of sin and, and of Satan and give life and redemption and salvation. I want everybody to pull up their seats real close and I want you to listen for just a moment. Salvation begins with God. We have established that. The Bible talks about that. You can't just decide one day, oh, I want to be saved apart from God. You can't do that. Salvation begins with God. Now listen to this, though. Listen to this. While salvation begins with God, it's God's pursuit. Please know that if you have a relationship with Him, or if you don't have a relationship with Him, maybe your relationship with Him is is estranged or broken, God is pursuing you right now. I believe that Scripture teaches that God pursues all people. That it's not just a, a select group of people that he pursues. And in no way does he, does he set out to, to save and have a relationship with only a few people. But the Bible tells us that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. So it's not just a group of people that God is wanting to have a relationship with. While we understand that salvation begins with God, salvation is God's to give, we also understand on the flip side that God pursues all people. And perhaps you're here right now and, and, and you're saying, I, I don't understand this. I don't, I don't, I don't understand, but God is pursuing you. Maybe you've wandered away. Maybe you've broken his commandments. You've, you've sinned against the holy God. You've sensed the sin and the shame and the sorrow and the separation today. Well, he's here. His presence is very real. And I believe that God, according to his word, knocks on the heart of every door knocks on the door of every heart. He's knocking, he's knocking, he's knocking. He's pursuing. That's what God does. He pursues. And you're here today and you're hearing this word, you're hearing this message and, and God is pursuing you and, 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 and your heart is beating fast and you understand I am living in sin. I'm living in the muck and the filth of this world. I'm not living up to what God has wanted me to live up to. I, I've, I've made a, 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 a mockery of, of my life and perhaps you're sitting here saying, oh, what am I to do? Listen, God is pursuing you and he will continue to pursue you until that door is shut the final time. You can run, you can run, you can run, you can run. But he's going to call out your name. He's calling out your name. When God said, where are you? God wasn't looking for information. He was testing Adam. God knew exactly where Adam was. He he wanted Adam to know where God was. Did you catch that? God wasn't wasn't asking Adam, where are you? He wasn't asking that question to find out where Adam was. He was asking that question to inform Adam where God was. Where are you? You see, if you call the church and say, Pastor, how do I get to Aloma? Give me directions to Aloma. The first thing I'm going to ask you, what am I going to ask you? What's the first question? Well, where are you? Where are you at? Where you be? Because where you are determines where you will go. That's a loaded statement there, isn't it? Where you are determines where you go. I can't tell you where to go until I first find out where you are. If you're coming from downtown, I'm going to tell you directions to to come from downtown. But if you're coming from Sanford, I want to give you a complete different directions if you're coming from up north. 
You have to know, listen to me, you have to know where you are in order to discover where you're going. You have to know where you are in order to discover where you're going. So where are you? Spiritually, I mean, where are you? God's asking you that question today. Are you living in sin? Are you, are you living in, in unrepentance and disobedience? You need to understand where you are. Don't, don't begin to give, to give excuses. Don't give excuses. Excuses don't matter to God. It's right or wrong. It's black and white. Excuses don't matter to God, right? You understand that? Well, my, 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 my sister made me do it. No, she didn't. I was raised in a poor home. And God says, I put you in that home. Excuses don't work with God. We come to God and it's black and white. It's right or wrong. It's his will or not his will. That's the only options. There are no gray areas here. And so God is asking that question. He's asking you because he wants you to know his heart. Be honest with yourself. Where are you? You have to understand where you are. If you are living in sin right now, unconfessed, unrepented sin, or if you're flirting with sin, if, 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 if that pretty little thing in the office is getting your attention and, and you're giving her a little bit more opportunity to speak into your life than what you should, that's flirting with sin. And perhaps you're sitting here and you're flirting with sin. When you flirt with sin, you're going to fall into sin. Be careful. Because understand this, that that in and of itself is not going to only hurt you, but it's going to damage your relationship with your spouse. It's going to damage your relationship with your kid. Sin, it's so, it's so exciting to think about, oh, I can just jump into the sin. But listen, sin is so damning. We don't think about the consequences, do we, when we're tempted? Where are you? You have to know where you are in order to go where you need to go. Number three, very quickly, we're out of time. It's the gift of salvation. The promise is given. Here in Genesis 3.15, we find the first gospel message. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. First gospel message. If you have it underlined in your Bible, you probably should. It's the first promise of salvation. This is the seedbed of all prophecy. The virgin birth is drawn back right to Genesis 3.15. That's why when we come at Christmas, that's why we make so much of the virgin birth of Mary because it says here, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. If you learn in biology, you learn that man is the one who carries the seed, not the woman. So it's the seed of the woman. The only way a woman can have a seed is for there to be a virgin birth. That's the only way possible. And so right here in Genesis 3.15, right at the cusp of them sinning, God is giving them the promise. They fell. They're in pain. They're in shame. They're in guilt. And God is giving them the promise of a coming Messiah, the one who will take away the sin that they just introduced into this world. The war is declared. There's a battle. There's enmity. And it all culminates in the birth of a son, the person of Jesus Christ. John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why the, the Bible says, the Scripture says, this bruising will take place. Because even though that Jesus was bruised, He said, You shall bruise His heel, but He shall crush your head. He's talking about Satan there. 
He says, Satan, you'll injure him. You'll bruise his heel. And indeed, on that cross, the, the venom of sin was injected into Jesus. Second Corinthians 5.21, for he was made, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. His heel was bruised. His body was bruised. His body, his, he, he was beaten beyond recognition. He poured out his blood. He shed his blood. But in the pouring out of his blood, his body taken off that cross, placed in the tomb three days later, the seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent when he rose again. 